Market Square. She's standing in her underwear, looking down from a hotel room. The nightfall will be coming soon. Oh my my, oh hell yes, you got to put on that party dress. It was too cold to cry when I woke up alone. I hit my last number. I walked to the road. Last dance with Mary Jane. One more time to kill the That, that you all love. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, and today in the studio, Shane McRae um, is here. Shane, thanks for coming down to talk. Thank you for having me. Um, you're here in town for the visiting writer, Zell Visiting Writers series. Um, yes. Oh, and Happy New Year, everybody, also, by the way. You too. Thank you. Happy Shane. New Year. And um, it's exciting to be back for a new year of, of Living Writers. And thanks for kicking things off with us, Shane. And yeah. um, and picking the rest of the songs that we'll, we'll hear today on the program. Um, of course, we just heard um, the Living Writers uh, theme song by George Cooper, um, uh, the band Home George. Uh, before we go any further, I'll read Shane McRae's bio in the back of the book that we have on the table with us today, The Gilded Auction, the Gilded Auction Block, out with FSG um, in 2019. Shane McRae is the author of five previous books of poetry in the language of my captor, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and the William Carlos Williams Award, and won the 2018 Ainsfield Wolf Book Award for Poetry. The Animal Too Big to Kill, winner of the 2014 Lexi Rudnitsky Editor's Choice Award, Forgiveness, Forgiveness, Blood, and Mule. He is the recipient of a Whiting Writers Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and the 2017 Lannan Literary Award for Poetry. He teaches at Columbia University and lives in New York City and visits Ann Arbor. Is this your first time here, Shane, or have you been before? Uh, yeah, no, I think this is my uh, first time here. Um, I realized that I had been in the Detroit airport before, but never at Ann Arbor. Oh, what? <clears throat> how did you realize that? <laughs> the kind of internal trolley car train thing that they have, I recognized it as I was walking all the way across the airport and not taking it. 
Oh, well, you're, you know what? You're going to have and not taking it. I know. Me too. I don't either. I somehow think it's going to take more time in the yes. end anyway. But you'll have to see more of Detroit. Yeah. And the, the airport. Um, may, this time or next time you're here. Yeah, I hope to. Um, and you're here for the Zell Visiting Writer Series. Uh, you'll be giving a reading tomorrow at the Helmut Stern Auditorium. Five o'clock. That sounds right. Does it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. um, well, let's let's talk about um, the 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 writing of the Gildan auc- auction block. Um, this book feels really um, important for this moment. It feels really con- connected to the contemporary time um, and necessary too. Um, so how how is it with writing these poems? Was it important to to have these come out and be part of the conversation now? And how long has this book been in the making? Well, um, in some ways, the book is in two parts. I like to think of them as being integrated, but I'm not sure whether they are. Um, there's the hell poem, which is a kind of big, long narrative. Um, and then there are a lot of individual lyrics. And the hell poem, I started writing... Uh, I think in 2014. Um, whereas the individual lyrics, um, uh, mostly having to do with Trump, um, really I started maybe a few months after he was elected. And so in a way, those were written fairly quickly, whereas the help poem was several years of um, tinkering and trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, and it wasn't until... Trump was elected president that I realized that what the help home needed was in a sense to have Trump in it. And so once uh, Trump became president, I put him in the help home and then everything kind of fit together. As a beetle. Yes, as a beetle. Uh, so so <clears throat> the beetle wasn't there to begin with. With the help home, it's it's a narrative poem. It's a long mm-hmm. poem. It seems to, to break from the individual lyrics um, and in, in many ways. How did the help home, how did that one start then? Was there an image? Was there, uh, yeah. How did it? I don't really know. Um, I mean, it started with, uh, the very first, um, I guess, uh, there's a poem in it called, uh, intake interview. And it it started with the first line of intake interview, which for some reason is not springing to my head right now. Um, Describe the lake. Describe the lake. That was it. Um, I think I had been trying to figure out how to write a poem about someone going to hell, um, but it it had had some sort of false starts. And then that, this interview form uh, came to me. um, (laughs) And I didn't, I didn't invent the form obviously, but I wanted to do a poem in that way. And that seemed to be the way in. Um, and um, initially, I think I was going to write um, a whole, like, well, I ended up actually um, writing a three-part epic. Um, but I didn't realize the form it would take until um, I was working on um, In the Language of My Captor. And I was starting to kind of figure it out. Um, because that one, although that one came first, the piece in it, which is called Purgatory, which is the first part of this um, three-part epic, I started writing it after the Hell poem. Um, and so uh, eventually I realized I was going to do Purgatory, Hell, and Heaven. The next book is Heaven. Um, and, you know... Um, I guess it was me trying to do the Dante thing. Oh, that doesn't sound right. Um, 
<laughs> seeing what I could do with the form that Dante uh, used um, to much greater effect. And so, and so you mentioned that the next book is heaven mm-hmm. then does that are the, all those poems in the making currently or are those already w- ones that are that's done the next book is called sometimes i never suffered and it comes out in june so they're all done and so reading the three of them together would be um a good thing to do i mean if you want um <laughs> reading them together is the whole Epic, whatever that means, it's kind of a tiny epic. I think all of them together is something like 200 pages. Um, but that is, yeah, that's the whole three-part thing. I envision someday um, putting them all together in one book with yeah. some additional um, material. More visual pieces? Like you More have poems. The hell? Okay. Like I have some alternate hell poems um, that um, I'm thinking of putting in the next book maybe. Um, but if I were to organize the three parts of the epic together, um, I would add those alternate hell poems like as a kind of appendix in a way. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to do more visual pieces because that was very specific to just what I wanted to do with the hell poem. Um, why <clears throat> is that? And can you describe them a little for listeners? I can try. I have... Um, <laughs> Like, I have no visual imagination, so it'll be rough. Um, mostly. How did the idea, then how did you know that visual pieces were necessary as, as part of the interplay here? Um, well, what I was kind of playing with was um, this, uh, you know, like illustrated editions of the Inferno. Um, and I thought, well, if I was going to do, you know, a hell poem of my own, I wanted uh, illustrations. And I had worked with this artist, uh, Christine Sajeki. She's a really wonderful artist, and she did. Um, you know, she's, I did, I worked with her on like a, like a poem for one of her images and she did a cover for one of my books and, um, I wanted to work with her, uh, with, for this. Um, and so what she came up with, um, were images sort of featuring, uh, they're all black and white images, um, in the book and, uh, there's like this bird who's in the book. There's a forest that's in the, in the book. There's pines. This, <laughs> pines. There's this um, uh, sort of gigantic factory. It's all images that are um, in some sense um, taken uh, from the poem. Um, but, um, you know, um, she's improved upon um, their occurrences in the poem. It definitely <clears throat> makes it feel like there's the uh, evocative. Like yeah. it's... it's um, as if the hell poem isn't clear enough that that these could be dark, dark, dark yeah. times and dreams within the scope of the narrative. Yeah, I used to, I you know, I didn't used to have a title. And so um, whenever I would try to talk to people about it, I would just say the hell poem. Um, and then um, I was... I think it was at lunch with uh, a couple of people at Kenyon uh, College, and I was talking about because I had been reading parts of it, and I said, well, you know, the hell poem, and they thought that that was a good title, and I thought, sure. I mean, that says what it is, so. And it, and it, it does, and it takes up, it's, it's got girth in here. Yeah, I think it's 40 pages in the book or something like that, including the, uh, the illustrations. So I know we had talked about maybe not reading parts of this because the mm. robot bird especially has quite a mouth yes. on him. <laughs> um, he swears a lot. But I feel like we've been talking about it. Is there, could you? Is there a part that doesn't involve swearing? Um, there's a speech by <laughs> Satan and Satan doesn't swear. Could we hear part of the speech by Satan? Cause, yeah, because there's plenty in in the hell poem that isn't swearing. I don't mean to make it sound like no, no, no. it's rife. Um, That's part of um, 
the bird's uh, personality. Um, it has to do with the bird's uh, vision of humankind and existence. Um, and let me see. The, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, you know what? I'm wrong, though. I was going to say, and the bird seems to get the last word, but it's, um, he doesn't. It's the narrator an describing yeah. the bird. Uh, so I could read, if you want, I would be happy to read um, the whole of uh, Satan's speech, but it is like three pages is that it's up to you that's fine um could you just read a, a short part let of it let me see let me see if i can figure out what to read uh <laughs> sorry the negotiation sorry, sorry. about that I, I wasn't it's a time factor because we'll go to break yeah, yeah yeah um okay i'll read uh hmm 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 that's right. I should do some some background like da da da. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out. Uh, I'm trying to figure out. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Um, so now I can't wait to hear what you're gonna read. <laughs> it's not. It's it's really not worth the wait. Um, oh, um, so Satan. The way this works is um, the bird is kind of guiding the narrator through the beginnings of hell. And uh, at one point, the bird opens uh, its mouth and like a recording of, of Satan giving a welcome speech starts playing. But the problem is that the speech starts skipping and you can see that even though it's a recording, it's somehow responding to the skipping. And so that when it comes back, it starts shouting. Um, so I'm going to pick up, I guess, um, and read the sort of last part of the speech, which is ends up being like a page and a half, but it doesn't take very long. Um, and it's where Satan is sort of explaining what he thinks um, the origin of human beings is. <clears throat> Here we go. All right. I made you what you are, death-seeking, out of pity for my son, death, who before you couldn't find a job. But surely there are worse reasons for being. Haven't you often wished you knew whether you were conceived with love for love's need? You were, my child, you were, and serve a purpose. You are hell, its living walls, its rivers. You are each other's flames in life and in this life. And you will find yourself unchanged. But would you know yourself if you weren't burning? I see your crime was love. You loved the world and wanted that love to end your obligations to the world. Why make the world a garden if you would punish its keeper for loving it as a father loves his wife? Here you will be the world. I grant you a part in it forever. I grant my wish for you to you at last. You are what you were made for and more so what you make, employment and a home for the God at the end of the world. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. From the Hell Poem, in the gilded auction block, out with FSG, I'm T. Hetzel, you've got living writers, and we'll be back. We're getting back to the place that we started. We see eye to eye. 
back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Shane McRae is here. The Gilded Auction Block, the book on the table with us out with FSG. Um, thanks for picking the songs for today, oh, Shane. Um, so why the song? Uh, well, uh, so that was um, an acoustic version of uh, The Brother Kite's Eye to Eye. Um, I just, you know... <sighs> So my favorite band of all time um, is My Bloody Valentine. Um, and they are a band that people are aware of. Um, but then I have, and I wonder if everybody doesn't have, um, sort of other favorite bands that maybe seem like strange choices. Um, <laughs> just because they haven't really had much of, they haven't had the impact I think they should have had. One of them is the Brother Kite. Another is this band called The Sound, which is a really truly great lost post-punk band um and and so the brother kite um there's this record label uh originally out of uh florida called claire records they're named after um a my buddy valentine song uh claire um and in the uh 90s early 2000s um there was kind of this fallow period with regards to public um i guess awareness or interest um in shoegaze which is the genre my buddy valentine <laughs> plays and um claire records was one of the record labels that was sort of maintaining um that that scene and they had a lot of um really cool bands that just didn't have a lot of exposure and Clara records is pretty small. Um, but wonderful. Are they and, still around? Yeah, they, they still exist, but they don't release as anywhere near as many records as they used to, which is, I completely understand. But fighting the good fight in Florida. Then. Yes. They're fight. Well, Florida was in the nineties, mid nineties, a really strange bastion of shoegaze. Like a lot of bands it was like the cool music there. I lived in Jacksonville in the um, mid '90s, and like all like the actual cool kids, that's all they wanted to do was listen to Shoecase. Everybody loved it. It was like the hot thing, and it was just this weird corner of the world that was so into that scene. And um, so it made, in some ways, perfect sense that uh, um, you know one of the major American labels for it, the other I think probably being Slumberland Records um, out of DC, uh, would be. Um, in Florida. So the Brother Kite was um, one of the bands that I consider, I guess I would say, one of their kind of cornerstone bands in that I think they've maybe only ever released records on Claire Records. Um, and they started out kind of sounding like people used to say, I mean, their, their, their tagline was like shoegaze death cab for cutie. <laughs> but I kind of thought they sounded a little bit sometimes kind of weirdly Foo Fighters-ish, but without the sort of commercial sheen that Foo Fighters has. Um, and that was sort of their first album. It was really noisy. I think that in, in some ways the band itself wasn't super happy with it. And then 
if you'll recall, in, I guess, early 2000s, there was this kind of um, Beach Boys hysteria that sort of seized American indie rock. And uh, the Brother Kite was one of the bands that responded to it um, best. Um, and they li- released this um, beautiful album called Waiting for the Time to be Right. And it was basically um, a kind of shoegaze influence, but not really, a little bit of influence of The Who, but um, The Beach Boys. Um but it, it wasn't, you know, a lot of Beach Boys harmonies and a lot of this sort of like starry-eyed, um, somehow, um, you know, girl next door mysticism of like Brian Le- Brian Wilson's like lyrics. Um, and so it was this, you know, um, trying to, I guess, wrestle with the big questions in a teenage way, even though none of them were teenagers. Um, and they were beautiful songs. They were wonderful songs. And um with Waiting for the Time to be Right, I just, they became one of my favorite bands and I couldn't understand why they weren't huge. I thought, I thought, you know, but I think that it's partly to do with, you know, sometimes, um, you know, uh, the music press just doesn't notice a band. Like there's, or sometimes it's not the right moment. Um, there's this band called Antarctica in like late nineties that sounded exactly like New Order, but it wasn't the moment for a band that sounded like New Order. But like, New Order 12 inches, so that they're like these, each song was like this eight or nine minute long, like electronic and guitar epic thing. Um, anyway, so I love The Brother Kite, and that's a really good song. That's why I picked it. Yeah, and you, and you clearly also love and, and need music. Sure. Um, if I, you know, if, if I could have made a living um, being somebody who talked about indie music, um, I, I would, I would have, um, I, I love, I'm very interested in the history of it, but I'm, I mean, I'm interested in all music, but I'm particularly for some reason obsessed with, um, the ins and outs of indie rock right now. I'm really, I'm really like having a goth moment and I've kind of had a goth moment for most of my life, <laughs> but it hasn't necessarily been dominant, but right now I'm sort of like, I'm, 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 uh, of the mindset where I'm thinking like the Sisters of Mercy is the greatest band that ever was. And I, and I can't, I can't, con- I'm surely could not convince anyone of this if I tried, but I still I don't think, think that was on your list. No, I didn't put the Sisters on my list. Because, and not The Cure either, one of your no, earlier influences with Sylvia Plath. No, well, because the Sisters, I, I you know, I, I've moved into the goth moment. I, uh, I have always loved goth, but there are, it's, at this particular instant in my life, it's fairly dominant. Um, and I'm interested in... Um, particularly the sisters, because I think Andrew Eldritch is, he's just a strange figure. I mean, he's, he's very, um, he's very particular. And, um, I guess I like his particularness, his strangeness. Um, and I, you know, I think they're a good band. So is there a, a, do you think this is like poems? Like this could be a book of poems? Uh, I don't know. I mean, particularly interesting goth. I've always thought of it as sort of, I mean, there's a certain kind of, I guess one of the things I love about goth is there's a way in which it's deathly serious. And, you know, post-punk musicians out of which goth grows are the only, like, pop musicians that bring in, like, serious, like, um, theory into their, like, music. Like, Scritti Politti um, was heavy into Derrida. Um, And so... 
and they were trying to like originally you know their music was very um off-putting but then they tried to figure out a way to sell the revolution through pop hits which they managed to do um and so you you know it's one is not necessarily aware that they're trying to talk about continental theory in their like top 10 hits that they had in the 80s but that's what they were doing um and so and 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 goth kind of grows out of that in a way goth is both intensely serious and weirdly campy but also like you can't admit that you can't say it's campy they know it's campy but they can't just say we're campy you know and so it's this weird kind of play but you can't like look at it in the face and say your play because then you break the illusion. And so I find goth very fascinating. I'm very interested in what it is that they're trying to do within the boundaries of popular music. But as a black person, um, when I was coming, getting interested in all this stuff, which I guess I would say I was about like 15 or so. When um, you started writing poems. When I started writing poems also, um, there was there wasn't much representation with regards to, I mean, everybody was white who liked goth. And at that point you were in, Portland. I was in Portland. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, one Oregon. The, Portland, Oregon. One of the goth ideals is to be, you know, sort of uh, as white as snow, as Robert Smith huh. says over and over again. Um, and it's I don't I don't think that it's a, it's racially motivated. I think that goths essentially like to look sickly. And so <laughs> it, it doesn't really have much to do, I don't think, with with race exactly. I think it has more to do with this sort of like ideal of essentially wasting away. Um, and so um, it was strange for me in some ways being a black person who could never achieve this sort of ideal, but nonetheless deeply interested in this music. And I, I wouldn't mind writing a book about it, but I don't know that I figured out how to do it yet. Huh, yeah. How it would work. Yeah. And whether it would be in poems or whether it would be. I, I mean, you know, I prose stresses me out. So it would be, it would probably, it would be poems. I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how to do prose yet. I'm working on it. And so, and what is it about meter that doesn't stress you out? That feels like the, the open arms uh, into your imagination or it's, in voice. It's to do, I think, largely with um, personal stubbornness, I think. Um, I love that. I've, I've, you know, it, I, I've, I've read so many, um, you know, kind of offhand remarks about how, um, in some ways, you know, contemporary writers who write in meter, actually contemporary, I'm thinking about something that Henri Coulette said, and he was a poet in the mid-century, a little bit later, um, but he was talking about how much it sounded like somebody writing in a second language, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, but I think he meant that a lot of contemporary poets who write in meter were fairly inarticulate with regards to meter, um, and I consider that a personal challenge, even though I didn't know him. So I'm constantly trying to figure out, can I do this thing even reasonably content, you know, um, successfully, I guess I would say. And so it almost is, it's metered, mm -hmm. metrical, it's, but it's not what it feels like necessarily on the page. And it's not like uh, presenting itself like that. Yeah. I, well, one Why of the is that important to you? I wanted to write metrical poems that were, um, I want to say, I always want to say it's good, but that would be then implying that I think my poems are good, and that's not the right thing to say. But they are. Well, I don't know. Um, I wanted to write metrical poems that were, for me, as successful as any free verse poems I would write. Um, and so, and I also initially 
in some ways wanted to disguise it. I didn't want people to be able to guess. And and a lot of them, for a long time, a lot of my books, people didn't realize that they were all metrical. Um, and I've seen plenty of times people be surprised, occasionally disappointed, to discover that they are it, metered and that they rhyme. Um, disappointed? I mean, I think um, certainly, you know, there's some vestiges of this idea that meter is old-fashioned and that... Um, it, it's, it's sort of on the wrong side of history in some ways to be doing it nowadays. Um, I don't agree with that, but I think that it, some people still kind of feel that um, deep inside. Well, what did it allow you to do? Because I feel like in your your history, from what I can from reading about you, mm. Shane, like it was it was change like it was life changing. Yeah, I if I had never written in meter, I don't know if I would have ever written a book, it, and I was. I've been obsessed with being a poet for most of my life and I was going to be a poet. Um, but it took writing and meter to figure out how to write, I guess. Um, so it, it freed me. I suppose it made whatever it is that I do possible. What was it about the constraints <laughs> that did that? Uh, well, or, and, and is it wrong of me to say constraints? No, no, either? no, no, no. That's the correct thing. Um, in some ways it, I worry about it less, I suppose. I worry about what I'm going to say less. Auden talked about how in in order to write free verse, you had to have a perfect ear. Um, that may or may not be true. I think it might be true. But I think what he meant was in order to write free verse, that's sort of successful. Um, and so um, for me, it, it, it meant there was one thing I maybe didn't have to think about as much. Um, I used to, before I started writing a meter, be tormented by not knowing how to start a poem like is this magical phrase just going to occur to me but then I've become a lot more fecund since I've started writing in meter and that I kind of know how the sounds are going to be positioned in relation to each other and so I can think up lines um because I'm doing it in meter whereas in free verse I don't know that I could could you give an example of that when you say how the sounds are positioned next to each other or is it the rhythms of iambic pentameter or what yeah that's what I mean in some sense like um Often enough, it starts with iambic pentameter, and and that means I kind of know where stresses are going to fall in a line, which means um, I kind of know what kinds of words I can use next to each other. And I think that even that little bit of work being done before I start makes it possible for me to start, um, or at least makes it easier for me to start. And then to to somewhat disrupt it then. Yeah, although I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that um but maybe it's like some spaces or oh like, yeah, or yeah, yeah a yeah. change in like a placement of where you place yeah. the rhyme or the yeah i do uh some weird things with where i with where i put my stresses and i do some weird tricks at certain points and i definitely use spaces a lot let's well, we'll maybe we'll take a break we'll mm-hmm. talk more when we come back today on the program Shane McRae is here. The book, The Gilded Auction Block. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got Gina Brandolino behind the glass. We're glad you're here. And we'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Shane McRae is here. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, the book on the table with us, The Gilded Auction Block, out with FSG. Um, thanks to Claire Tobin for sending along copies of the book for us. Um, Shane, yeah, that was great. That that musical pick. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um... That's Tenement Roofs by um, this band called Glorious Din. Um, and they were um, fronted uh, uh, by a man named Eric Cope, who um, he was born in Sri Lanka. And he, um, I'm not exactly sure the story about how it happened, but he, I think he heard Joy Division and he wanted, uh, I guess he was, that the music just sort of, lit him up inside and he wanted to figure out how to do it himself. And so he moved uh, in the early 80s to San Francisco and he formed that band and they did uh, two albums. Do you know if he ever got a chance to like meet folks that were then became part of New Order or anything? Uh, I don't, no, I like, don't know. I am not going to wait for the poem, right? There yeah. might be a poem about I should. I should read more about Eric Gill because I, 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 I think that, or Eric Cope, I mean, I think that uh, Eric Gill is a completely different person. I think that um, Glorious Sin is in some ways very important because, uh, you know, they're, they're one of the first um, post-punk bands of color. But I also think that... Um, they are are not as well known as they should be at all. Yeah, with a sound like that. Yeah, it's really th- good stuff. Thanks for choosing Glorious Denver um, today. Uh, definitely, you're like making my. This is like a soundtrack I can walk around to. Oh, Thank good. you, Shane <laughs> McRae. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk poems again. Yeah. Let's talk the Gilded Auction Block, um, and and maybe well, let's start there with the title um, because it comes. Let's see. It's from this poem called Purchase. Yes. Yes. It's, do you know, there aren't, so there aren't as many page numbers. 22. Here, or you've got. Yeah. yeah, there's not a lot of pages. They're up at the top, and so they're hiding. Um, and Purchase, that page doesn't happen to have a number on it at all. That's was my problem. Yeah. I couldn't hear. Um, there it is. Do you mind, would you, I don't know, is this one you would want to read? I'll read it, sure. That's fine. <clears throat> Purchase. America, I was born incapable of owning what I work for, even, but it doesn't, it never mattered, doesn't matter where I went to school or where I teach or who. America still, my life belongs to somewhere, a some white person who can't live it, because I'm living it, America, and they would live it better, easier, the way the maybe the professor would, or maybe he was staff at Oberlin. The white man who, as I was walking to, wearing a hoodie to a meeting in a building which was at the time a crew was repairing, he stepped up to me and asked, so are you guys just drying out the floor here? How but with my life can I answer him who calls me down from the gilded auction block? Yeah, uh, well... That actually happened, and he actually did say, ask me the question he asked in perfect iambic pentameter, so it was very helpful. Uh, A sign. Yes. Um, I was going to an editorial meeting um, uh, at Oberlin College where I worked, and um, this guy came out of an office. Um, I think he probably actually was staff, and he, he had a drink in his hand. I think it was like coffee, and he just walked up to me and, you know, stood next to me the way um, 
men do who when they get in front of a construction project they're not involved with, but they try to like I don't know. They have this way of standing can, that, like, I can picture it. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. They're trying to say, "I know about this." Um, and so he stood next to me in that way, and he asked if I, you know, if we were, if we, I guess, me and the the the, the workers there were drying out the floor, and um, I, I I was, you know, I wish I could have thought of something um, stinging to say, I suppose, but all I just I just said that I teach here or something, and then he kind of uh, shuffled away. Um, and that was sort of it, but it was in some ways it was very upsetting. In other ways, it was not um, in, not surprising. Um, but uh, I wrote that poem about it and um, thought that I had invented the phrase "the gilded auction block," um, which I thought was a little melodramatic. But I also thought, you know, I thought it was cool. And then um, just assuming I had invented it one day for some reason I googled it and discovered I had not invented it and that it was a term that it never really became a popular term but it was used on more than one occasion in more than one place by more than one person to describe um, what it is for um, a woman to get married Um, she's put on the gilded auction block Um, and so I had just assumed that if it had ever occurred before, and again, I didn't think it had, it would have to do with slavery because that's what I was thinking. But it turns out it also has to do with marriage, at least when it occurred before. So when when you when you discovered this mm-hmm. this term, like when when I and in that I mean when you wrote it, yeah. <laughs> not when it, yeah, seeing it, like it's other origin, whatever. Um, like, is it something that you felt like, when did you know it was going to be the title of the book? Like the title that speaks something about the book? I don't know. Um, I, titles always cause me trouble. I always, I've got a, I got a lot of angst about titles and covers and, uh, book covers, book cover images. And I, um, uh, usually what'll happen is I'll get to a point where I just can't figure it out. Um, and then I'll just start flipping through the book, um, going through the manuscript, not actually flipping cause I don't have it physically. I'll be looking through it on my computer until I find a phrase that I like and that'll be it. Cause I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to give books titles. I don't know. That actually sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'll find a phrase that I think works. I think that people like, um, the next book, sometimes I never suffered. That's, um, the last line or the first part of the last line of a poem in the book. And it originally had a totally different title that I thought was cool, but in retrospect, wasn't very cool. What was it? uh, It was originally called the rainbow into life. And I was, I liked it (laughs) because I was talking about, I like it. Um, after uh, the the great flood, and you know God puts a rainbow in the in the sky, and I was thinking about um, Robert Lowell's poem, "The Quaker Graveyard at Nantucket," and some other stuff, and I was like, you know, I'm being cool or whatever. Um, but and um, people would always respond in this way that took them a second, and of course, because of how vain poets are, I was like, they're blown away. And so they just don't know what to say. Um, but I realized um, and the, the, what they were doing was being like, oh, okay. And they had to like absorb it and then like think of something nice to say. And Because um, it wasn't just it, rolling off their it, lips it, naturally. Were just, yeah. yeah. And so I'm glad it eventually, I think somebody pointed out to me, but I'm forgetting who, that it maybe wasn't a great title. And um, sometimes I never suffered. I like a lot more. But it was a second title and it was... Um, 
an attempt, you know, going through um, all of my poems to find a phrase. In fact, the poem that the rainbow into life, it, this poem started with this line, um, forgiven by the rainbow into life. And it was the first poem in the book. It's not in the book anymore. But um, G.C. Waldrop, actually, the poet, was the one who told me, he said that that was the worst poem in the book. And I, I it was my favorite poem. And so I oh. thought, oh, no, does that mean I don't know what I'm doing? I mean, <laughs> and so I cut it. And then um, the book is better now. But um, that's where the title came from, um, the original title. And that's... Is that a book that's that's coming out? That's forthcoming, June. right? It's okay. That's the June title that's for the one, the, June. the one that has heaven in, within it. That's the heaven book. Okay, yeah. and, and you you have mentioned G. C. Waldrop before. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I think like is one of the poets that more people should know. He, I think he's one of the best poets writing in America, and um, I also like him a lot as a person. Um, but I would think he's one of the best poets writing in America if I didn't like him a lot as a person. Um, I just happen to be friends with him, and uh, which is a great, it's my great good fortune. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think he's a wonderful poet. And because you, you hold his work in high regard, and also it sounds like trust him as a human, mm. um, he was someone who was able to say something about this poem that you loved. Mm-hmm. Cause how hard is that? Like, have you ever, have you ever felt that way about a poem before and then taken it out or, or, or been told like, or not, or fought to keep it or. Usually, um, people don't, I mean, the only person who sees my manuscript before, um, it's published is usually the editor of the press. Um, so Jonathan Galassi will see it, you know, cause I, you know, I sent it to him and say, what do you think of this? Do you, would, you know, would FSG be willing to publish it? And, um, so he's the person who sees it. He's the one who offers suggestions and, you know, does that editorial work, but otherwise nobody sees it. But GC, um, I did send it to him cause, um, I wanted to partially dedicate it to him, um, the book. Um, and so, I mean, it always stings for someone to say, not in a like, not not in the like GC was being mean way, but it always stings just because that's how it is when somebody says this thing that you made that you like is no good at all. Um, but I'm really grateful because otherwise I think the book wouldn't be, it would not be as good as it is. Um, I think that that version of the book was much weaker than the version that's actually going to be published. Um, and I I don't think I would have figured out how to make that change if not for GC. What about the lead poem in this book, Shane? How did... The lead poem in this book. Yeah, uh, The President Visits the Storm. And then it, it actually... So we've got an epigraph, and then we have a lead poem. Mm-hmm. Then we have a, a a page break, an entire, like, full bleed a black, black page. page. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Lawrence Stern does that in Tristram Shandy. Um Mine's just accidental, but I'm going to tell people that it's because of Tristram Shandy. Completely. Uh, um, yeah, well, so, you know, I like epigraphs um, because I like, I think that they're helpful for how to get someone to think about a thing that you're doing. Um, Ann Carson, one of my favorite poets. Yes. Um, Stina Nordenstam um, is one of my favorite musicians. Um, and um, they have the two epigraphs that. Yeah. That precede the table of contents. Yeah, she has this Stina Norton the, the quote is is from her quote is uh from this I'll just read it. Um was it a whim of fortune or was I hard to find? What's the routine of a man with a gun? 
Was it a kind of torture? Have you been out of town? What is it like to a man with a gun? So it's from this um, song of hers called The Man with a Gun. And it's from this album called Dynamite. If anybody knows who she is in America, it's because she had the song called Little Star on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, the one with Leonardo DiCaprio, um, that version of the movie. Um, and that soundtrack sold, and so people were like vaguely aware of her existence. She's a Swedish um, musician, and I think she's wonderful, but she's also, I don't think has almost, she has almost no American following. And, um, that album Dynamite is the only, and I, and I mean this, I really do mean this categorically. It's the only pop music. And when I say pop, I mean very broadly pop that I've ever heard that is legitimately depressed. Like I've never, people write sad songs all the time, but that's different. It's depressed. It's not necessarily sad. And it's very, it's the sound that it, I just haven't heard it in any other popular music. What about yet. quasi? Oh, no, not even close. No? No. A lot of what I think people think of as depressive pop music is there's still this thing about art that you find uplifting, even in, like, The Cure's Disintegration. Right. It's still beautiful, yeah. you know? Um, no, dyna- Dynamite is sad. It's just really sad in this way that... It's hard to imagine that she lived past it, but she did. And she made beautiful records after that, but it was such a heavy album. Um, The closest analog, if we're thinking of The Cure, would be Pornography. That album is so heavy. But that album is heavy in a... It's it's violently despairing, whereas Dynamite is just despairing. And that action somehow is changes it. It changes it a little bit. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Shane McRae is here. His book... The Gilded Auction Block, a book of poems out with FSG. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Music's not a mirror to reflect reality. It's a hammer with which we shape it. Yeah, so all my great figures, we the shape shifters. The fire flame spitters, we the shape shifters. So all my great mamas, great fitters might save from the film, get they weight bigger. The shape shifters, so all my great figures, we the shape shifters. So all the plate spinners, we the shape shifters. So all the great mamas, great fitters might save from the film, get they weight bigger. The shape Welcome back. Um, you've got living writers um, today on the program. Shane McRae is here. Um, and I'm so glad. It's been great talking with you, Shane. It's been great talking with you. Come back anytime. Oh, well. Call in, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. Um, so we're in the last quarter of the show. Um, oh, and thanks for picking. Uh, you mentioned the, who we were just listening to. Yeah, that's uh, Invincible um, um, from her album uh, Shapeshifters. Um, and that was the song Shapeshifters. And she's a, uh, uh, a rapper from D- Detroit, um, although I think she was born in Israel, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and her album, what it, it's just a wonderful record. It's from your, from, um, reading about some of your biography, Shane, mm-hmm. it's, you've been so many places, you've lived so many places and yet still surprised me with Jacksonville. Somehow <laughs> you're like, and in the mid nineties, I was in Jacksonville. Yeah. Yeah. It's living all over the country. Sure. Uh, I loved Jacksonville too. Also, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deeply strange city. At least when I lived there, 94, 95, you could go. It's a very large city at the time. It might have been physically the largest city in the U.S. And it's got like a real downtown big buildings and stuff. And I was, you know, I, I was a skater for like 20 years. And so I would go skate downtown with my friends um, 
and like on a, on a weekend. And Jacksonville, the downtown was so focused on uh, essentially business that it would be, and it's going to sound like hyperbole, but it's not. There would be actually nobody there in the entire city, and there would be tumbleweeds blowing down the road, and you could see like wild packs of like packs isn't the word, but like chickens, just wild chickens and roosters walking around downtown Jacksonville because there were no people at all. Um, it was like a ghost town, but on the week and during the week it would fill up. It was a really strange place in the mid nineties. Um, but it was, you know, <laughs> so, and now you're in New York city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always full. Always full. Always full. <laughs> um, will you read another poem? Sure. For Shade? Uh, this, other than the hell poem, this might have been, well, there's some poems in the back that are in some ways older, but this was, I think, sort of the first poem that I wrote um, in reaction to Trump um, in a mode that I felt like I could keep doing it. Um, and this is called um, Everything I Know About Blackness I Learned from Donald Trump. And it's got an epigraph, um, which is it's just something that Donald Trump said, which is, um, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. Everything I know about blackness I learned from Donald Trump. America, I was driving when I heard you had died. I swerved into a ditch and wept. In the dream, I dreamed unconscious in the ditch. America, I dreamed you climbed from the ditch. You must believe your body is an anybody and stood beside the ditch for eight years, thinking. Except you didn't stand, you right away lay down on your pale belly and tried to crawl your way back to the ditch. You right away began to wail and weep and gnash your teeth. My tears met yours in the ditch, America. They carry me downstream. A slave on the run from you, an Egyptian queen, and even in my dreams, I'm in your dreams. Thanks. Thanks, Shane. So what is it like writing in some kind of response and Mm -hmm. in in giving the voice of Donald Trump... um, space on the page because you're changing things like you're changing you know it's like there's like um it's and like you said the hell poem um almost him talking yeah the beat it wouldn't have like it wasn't working until Mm. him as a piece was part of it yeah i mean the thing about the beetle was always there but the beetle did not have a particular personality it just had a function it wasn't until trump was elected I realized that that would be the Beatle would be Trump, um, and that I would give the Beatle a speech, um, and it was fine to put. I mean, this is a weird thing to say, and I, maybe I shouldn't say it. Trump has such a definite way of talking that fun isn't the word because he's kind of a monster. But if it were fun, it would be fun to play around with that voice because you know how it works, and you can do things with it. You understand what he's going to say. And so it's like, you know, it's having, it's like a different color to work with. You know, you've got it. You've got all this material in front of you and you can do what you want with it. And so, I mean, but on, on the other hand, you know, I can admit it's fun because this is part of what you do as a writer. I think like, you know, as a poet, you can be writing a poem about the most horrific thing, but there's a joy in writing so that, you know, even when you're writing about somebody getting mangled or some terrible thing happening, you feel happy doing it because it's just the thing of making art 
I hope is joyful, even if the art itself is about something terrible. And so there is a kind of joy in using that voice, even though it's terrible. You know, it's like if I step away from it, I hate it. I hate, ugh. but doing the work itself always, if, if it's not joyful, then I think to some extent you probably have to change it because why would you do it? You know? Um, and so in a way, I think I get questions like that about a lot of different kinds of poems I write. And it, and, and they're often like, wasn't it, you know, how painful was it to write? And I have to say it wasn't painful. It was great. Um, in retrospect, it's painful, you know, but the doing of the thing is fine. And so writing Trump, it's, you know, it's a different kind of thing and you get to do different things with that voice. You have, uh, I would never use a voice like that in a poem. And so it's something new to explore. Um, but, and this was also written at a relatively comparatively benign moment. It was when Trump was just elected and he had yet to do most of the things he has since done. But at that first instance, it was easy to think of him as kind of a buffoon as opposed to like this sort of world historical monster that he's become. And so it was less like, I don't know what it would be like to do it now, but when I did it, it wasn't, terrible so you're not it's still it's not part of the work now no i don't do um poems in trump's voice anymore i I think a few months into his presidency i think i did i tried to do one more for this book and it it did feel different as i said if it's not joyful i think you shouldn't do it and it wasn't joyful to use his voice then um but because in the beginning as i said he was kind of more of a buffoon it was just a new thing to kind of play around with was the way he sounded and and so and that was in the making of it. And now mm-hmm. when you when reading it now, it's also clear that he's he's not a buffoon. Yeah. <laughs> and the poems uh well, wait. Okay. That's another that's another sure. hour program. Um but what I mean is that it's not um like a, a fun thing or a need mm-hmm. like you were saying, it's 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 not that. Um and so these poems have a different weight mm. but you can still see the absurdity sure and then the pain and the all the things that you're rolling into this yeah no he's i don't mean to say this in a way that sort of disarms the dangerousness of him he's an absurd person uh, very absurd it doesn't mean he's not dangerous he's i think a lot of people who have historically been terrible are also absurd. I mean, I think you kind of have to be absurd in some ways. And so if you're going to be that awful. And so the Beatles' speech is more about his narcissism, um, which before he had exercised any real power was sort of the central feature of his um, way of presenting publicly, Um, whereas now he has to disguise... um, his his narcissism in sort of what ends up being sort of public policy. He's still talking about his narcissism. He's still talking about himself, but it's wrapped up in our the politics of our lives. Whereas in the beginning, it was just more about you know he just talk about himself when he was running for president, and it wasn't it didn't have any real impact. And so it was easier early on to sort of focus on um, his absurdity. Well, and it seems like you're you're so um, still in this. Mat- Material in some way mm. is it part? Is it has did the did the beetle or so did that go into working in the next book out in June the heaven section or no? Um, the, it, in some ways, it was a scary book to write because I knew it wasn't going to be. It still it ends up there's a lot of stuff about racial politics, but the things about racial politics in it I think are things that are in some ways kind of everlasting in America. Whereas the Trump stuff was much more of that particular moment. And it was a little scary to write it because 
I was moving away from this engagement with the daily politics to deal with maybe more politics with a longer tail. And so um, it was uh, changing the mode a little bit, and that was a little nervous, but it, I, heaven has no contact with the Beatle, and so he's not, he's not in it. Let's leave it there then today. <laughs> Shane, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to June already um, for the next one. And it was it was wonderful today to talk about the Gilded Auction Block, um, out with FSG, um, Shane McRae's poems. Um, thanks to Frank Uly for post-production. Um, thanks to Ashley Bates and the Zell Visiting Writers series, to Gina Brandolino for making us sound good. Um, text for being at the ready. Um, thanks to all of you out there for listening. Hello to mom in Florida. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Nick Hornberg, and on the other side of the glass today, we have Adam Bressler, Charlie Brigham, and Ross Kaufman. Gentlemen, good evening. Let's uh, start in here. A little bit of movement in the NFL. Ross, we'll start with you. All right. New York Giants have hired a new head coach, Joe Judge. Now, 
I would be very dishonest if I told you that I knew anything about this guy because I don't, other than the fact that he's a Patriot assistant, which uh, for head coaching prospects tends not to end well. All right, so the initial, you know, this is how New Yorkers typically react whenever there's a new hire or coaching hire, and especially like what the Giants have done these past few seasons is, whoa, what the heck is this? What, what, what kind of hire is this? This guy has no experience. This guy. You gotta wait a second. That might have been my initial reaction at first, but you gotta give it an hour or so and think, okay. You know, I got to look at the facts. Joe Judge was under the tutelage of Nick Saban and Big Belich- Bill Belichick, two of the brightest, most successful coaches in the history of the sport of football, okay? And he spent the past eight years or so as a special teams coordinator. That might not be a high-ranking co- position, but if he—I don't know. I'd like to give him a chance.